Welcome back to The Brandon White Show, where we have conversations worth listening to give you an edge to win in your business and your life. I'm your host, Brandon White. Here we go. Welcome back to The Edge Podcast, giving you the edge to win in business and in life. Here's your host, Brandon White. Hey, Billy. Hey there. Doing good. Let me uh, turn my phone off here. No no problem. I'm yours. How are you today? You're coming. You're in Seattle, aren't you? I am. Yeah. What's going on up there? How's the weather? Is it, has the sun shown Uh, this year yet? (laughs) You know, the funny thing was yesterday, not yesterday, over the weekend and, uh, and on Monday, it was a scorcher. I mean, we were up in the, the nineties and nineties for us is super toasty. And then, Lo and behold, like Monday comes around, or no, Tuesday comes around, and then it was a big old cloud that rolls in, and then back to like old stereotypical Seattle. So, man, there's a reason it's green. That's for sure. Yeah, man. The last flight when COVID happened that I took, I was visiting a friend on Vashon Island, took the ferry over, got on the plane, landed, and then there was this thing called COVID. They said out had an outbreak in in Seattle. And that was up until recently, literally, Billy, the last flight I took. So, but Seattle's a cool spot. I, I think I saw the sun up there one day. <laughs> you guys have a, you guys have a cool climate. I was excited to talk to you. You're actually the first shoe company that we've talked to on the edge and had a ton of consumer products, CEOs and founders and whatnot. But shoes is, I love shoes because I don't know. Well, I, I'm sure you do too. I've got like 5 million shoes in my closet. My wife probably has 5 million times 10. And it's a great consumer category, but I think it's really hard to make a shoe. It is. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, you don't just jump into it. Well, I guess, I guess you do have to jump into it, but it just takes a commitment like big time. You don't just have to, it's one of those deals where you don't, I mean, speaking of shoes and like foot related, you don't just like, dip your toe in the water. You got to jump all in and go for it. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what you did, isn't it? For listeners, can you, could you share a little bit of your story on how you got into it? And you have a, I mean, it's a cool feature to be honest with you. I read about your shoes probably a few months ago and then I'd read about you. And then I didn't realize until this week that you actually, that the shoelaces are fake. <laughs> which is my fault. Oh. I never realized that I because it looks real. I was like, oh, well, it's a cool shoe. And then I watched a video of you and then I was like, oh man, I actually got that completely wrong. So yeah. Well, actually, no, the, the laces are, they are functional. Oh, they are. Uh, they are functional. Yeah. So, I mean, it has that zipper configuration for the convenience, but with the, with the laces, it gives that ability to uh, adjust it. Because we noticed that for the most part, everyone has feet. But to everyone's foot's a little bit different. So with that adjustability, you get it to fit right, you double knot it, and you're good to go with the zipper. Ah, oh, right on. Yeah, I had never seen that. So for <laughs> listeners, if you haven't seen it, you go to Billy Footwear, which we'll put in the show notes, but and we'll talk about here today. But it is a how would you describe it? Well, I would describe it as a very easy on, easy off shoe. Because for the most part, everyone loves a convenient shoe. <laughs> and uh and people approach that for multiple, multiple reasons. Now, me, I'm a wheelchair user, and that wasn't always the case. I broke my neck when I was a teenager. I fell out of a three-story window, spinal cord injury, um, in both the neck and the lower back. And uh, just like that, my life changed. And there were a lot of things I used to be able to do that I could no longer do. 
and putting on shoes is one of those deals. So it was based on myself and my fellow co-founder, who's a longtime friend of mine from growing up. We put our heads together and uh, came up with a solution and threw it out there in the market, see what it would, see if it would take. And people really gravitated towards it. So it's been a fun, a fun ride, basically a side hustle that turned into a main hustle, to tell you the so truth. So is that, so I mean, in, I'm not looking at the clock, but you might have summarized that. I sent you that video and I joke because you could sum up your story. You're really good and concise. You did that in like 20 seconds, but you can't just jump over like, to build a shoe, how do you build a prototype of a shoe? I mean, the best I can tell, I listened to the Vans story, forget his name right now, the founder of Vans, and he talks about in that how you have to craft this soul and you have to mold a soul and then you have to put this thing together. And then, I mean, there's more to it. So how did you even figure that out? Well, a great question. And uh, so Darren, Darren took it upon himself. So this is kind of, when, when our when our story started, really, Darren and I grew up together. We knew each other all of our lives, and our paths kind of separated. And we got reacquainted at a party. And uh, when we were spitballing, like just kind of catching up, he was telling me about a shoe project he was working on on his own. So basically, what he did was he challenged himself, going like, "You know what? I've got a lot of shoes in the closet. I like shoes. I want to learn how to do this. I want to learn this craft." And uh, he took a class. <laughs> He took a class and that class showed or taught him all the different components of the shoe, how to put together like a rendering drawing and communicate to a factory to be able to put this thing together. Because there's so many elements that go into the shoe that we don't really think about. There's the outsole, there's the midsole, there's the, you know, strobe stitch to pull that all together, the upper, I mean, all the material callouts. Some materials work, some materials don't, like the type of components for the, for the outsole. So in that class, he actually learned that stuff. So he's telling me about this at this party and it got me really excited. And all I did was I threw an idea at him. I was like, you know what? Every shoe on the market requires you to shove your foot into a shoe. I bet if we put a zipper in a shoe, which isn't original, but I bet if we did it in an original way and have it go on the outside around the toe where the whole upper folds over, I could drop my foot in unobstructed. And with my limited hand dexterity, I could grab that zipper and zip it up. Because he already had like kind of the knowledge and the points of contact to be able to make a prototype and already the skill set to make a drawing, he put together a package and sent it off to a factory and they made a prototype. And lo and behold, it worked exactly as we had hoped. And uh, I took back that independence and it was really so special. We ended up turning it into a business. And the, so, I mean, did, did he, I guess through this, I've never, I guess you could take a class on anything. Did he, know the factory through the class and they're able, did you guys chip in a hundred bucks? I mean, one, one prototype generally costs a lot of money. I used to make fishing lures and you would think that you could make a $5 fishing lure prototype for maybe 25 bucks. And it turns out that costs more like 400 bucks by the time you've done the molds and which is a temporary mold and all this crazy stuff that, you just don't think about it. I think those molds are still in my mom's basement. Hot tip, you should be careful when you build products that are made of lead that have <laughs> that, that have a lot of weight to shipping. But anyway, that can cost money. So how do you guys approach that? Yeah, well, you're exactly right. You don't just make a prototype for five bucks. <laughs> it costs a lot. And I, I don't, I don't think, I want to say $500 for the prototype, but it was they may be a little high. It was like three, three, four, five hundred dollars. But yeah, it definitely costs some money. So Darren didn't have a 
connection directly to a factory. What he did was he had connections with an agent. And basically an agent, what they do is they have connections to a bunch of factories. And then they shop the project around and find someone to make a sample. And essentially what the factory is trying to do is they're trying to win your business. So you make a sample and then trusting that it turns out well, they're going to be immediately behind that trying to solicit like a big, a big order. So through that class, he was able to get in contact with an agent. And then I think he may have had to go through a couple of agents for his own project, but the agent that he was working with for his own project, that's what we used for, for our little deal. And that's how that's long where, ago, that's where how long ago was that? So that was in 2000. So this conversation, the timeline's kind of wild here. The, that, the conversation was in December of 2011. We actually made the prototype in 2015. So there was a big amount of time in between. And then, uh, that you just when, like were not taking it serious or you didn't know what was going to happen. Like just, Hey, we met at the party. We talked about it. Sounds cool. And then it, one of those things that just doesn't get done. Well, it was more talking about when you start doing a shoe company, you got to jump in and start doing it. And uh, to do it, it costs a lot of money. So between that conversation and making that prototype, it was a matter of getting money. Oh. So what we did it was we did a, we did a totally different thing and uh, did a Kickstarter campaign to generate some revenue to be able to help fund not only the prototype but then the order following that to be able to actually have a line to be able to show to the market. Uh, can you talk about that? Because everybody thinks Kickstarters just put your shoe up on there, put a video on, and everybody comes and funds it. How did th- how did that work? This episode is sponsored by the Halle Financial Team at Expert Lending. Buying a house in today's market is competitive, and you need a lender that can close fast and get you the very best rate. The team is licensed in 48 states and has over 20 years experience in the real estate and lending space and access to lending rates that most mortgage brokers can't get. I know because I'm an investor in the team. If you need a mortgage or know someone that does, call or text Kara at 571-271-9086 and talk to a real human who will give you the customer service you deserve. Again, call or text Kara at 571 271 9086. Now back to the show. Yeah, it's not quite that easy. <laughs> we definitely did our homework. And the, the project that we put on Kickstarter was, it was a ski glove. It was an adaptive ski glove that, um, I mean, I skied before I was in a wheelchair and then I started skiing again after I was in a wheelchair. And one of the challenges I had with downhill skiing in a sit ski was because of my limited hand dexterity, I wasn't able to hold on to my outriggers. Mm. Now outriggers are like ski poles, but they have skis on the end of them. So because of my limited hand dexterity, I couldn't really not only put my hand into a five finger glove, but then to be able to hold on to something and uh, successfully it was tough. So my dad and I, we put together this adaptive ski glove that allowed me to be able to hold on to those outriggers. And because that prototype was already in place, we figured that others out there may want to have it too. So we did a Kickstarter campaign specifically for that ski glove. And we put a goal out there of 7,000 and uh, we ended up raising over 30,000. And then that 30,000 then was pushed forward or paid for it, I guess, into the shoe project. So, I mean, this is kind of a side hustle kind of deal. We had no idea that the ski gloves would do really well. We had no idea that the shoes would take off. 
So we were doing our day jobs, um, the regular nine to five and then going about our lives as this stuff was kind of going in the background. But then as success started to hit, those side hustles forced us to step away from our day jobs. Was your partner like, we're going to do a ski glove to fund our shoe company that doesn't really line up. But I guess if we make some money off of that, then we can do it. And is the ski glove still part of Billy's footwear? Well, you know, when we first started, like, you know, kind of conceptualizing, like, what could become a business, we had no idea what the business would would turn into. I mean, it could have been just, like, straight, like, just adaptive-centric. And uh, so it's like, okay, well, shoes and gloves, and it's, like, they're all, like, under this, like, the way the design was, it, it's, it, it has those, those functional features. So then it kind of made sense. But the ski glove, to, to your question, like, the ski glove, do we still do the ski glove? We have gloves, but... We just don't, it's not a part of Billy footwear. So here's, so it it was, it it was one of the stepping stones to a bigger, a much bigger pond. Yeah, clearly. How did you figure out your first order of shoes and what sizes and colors? There's so many skews. I mean, it's, it's, it, it it was something my brother and I tried a t-shirt. We still have a t-shirt company, but we figured it out. But if you're going to print and make bets on styles and colors and sizes, there's so many SKUs that you have to have. And when you don't get them right, your profit is sitting in the warehouse. I mean, you think you made money on, you are making healthy margins on the products, but you are not as a company making money. How did you guys figure that out? Well, so the number of shoes that we bought on the first go was, it was dictated by our own pocketbook. We stretched ourselves as far as we could financially. So that ended up being 4,200 pairs of shoes. That's all that we could do. And of those 4,200 pairs of shoes, it was made up of seven different silhouettes. So there was two kids' shoes, two women's shoes, and three men's shoes. Because we wanted to be able to have kind of a a nice, even selection of all the different all the different genders just to see what the, how the market would respond. So that, that was really our starting point. In terms of the colors, it was it was very kind of core colors, the stuff that would be like very like year round. So we were using a green and black. Black's, the funny thing is black is like as plain as black is, black always sells. I mean, it's always like, what's the new black? But then we also had some stuff that was kind of blingy. It was kind of a galactic type color. And uh, it turns out that that was, that was a big mistake. Oh my gosh. Because the material that was selected ended up just being treacherous and it caused so many, it just wasn't a good material. But you know, we were very green in terms of like, you know, entering into this space. So we did make some mistakes early on that we chose not to make later in life. Where do you store 4,200 pairs of shoe boxes? So our first warehouse doubled as my parents' basement. And you just stack, I mean, that that's, yeah, my, I think there's still stuff in my mom's garage. But so, so, so you basically just used the basement as the de facto warehouse. We did. Yes, we did. So we started my parents' basement. And then from there, we moved into Darren's kitchen and had a a semi-truck trailer on the property. And that's where uh, all the product was. And then from there, by that time, this was around August of 2017, uh, going into 2018. And uh, that's really when the business really started rolling because we had hit the shelves of Nordstrom and Zappos. And uh, it really warranted us to get a much bigger space. So we actually rented a, a commercial warehouse that was about 3,000 square feet. And we thought we would never fill it up. And then about three months after signing that lease, we were at capacity. So 
we moved into a bigger space after that, and sure enough, we thought we wouldn't we wouldn't fill that up, and sure enough, we did. So I know there's a. Um, um, I feel like I'm well. missing something, Billy, because I don't know how you go from your parents' basement in a tractor trailer to Nordstrom and Zappos. How do you do that? So one of the big things that happened from that initial manufacturing run is there was we were selling shoes. We did a second Kickstarter campaign where we were selling the shoes while the shoes were being made. And when the shoes came over and we received them, we opened them up and we found that of those 4,200 pairs of shoes, 80% of them were bad. They were blemished. We couldn't sell them. It was a real, real, real punch to the gut, a financial blow. And it really just, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to move forward. To tell you the truth, I mean, it was just a, it was just a really hard, hard moment early, very early in the business. So what do you do? So it was a situation where we could have either just like thrown in the towel and said, you know what, we're done. We're not going to move forward. Or we could double down and uh, find better, better manufacturing, a better agent and get connected with the right people that really knew what they were doing. That moment, we brought another person onto our team who was a shoe dog and uh, he very well connected in the industry. And he got connected to a better manufacturer and uh, they are or a better agent, a better sourcing partner that was connected to better factories. They're based in the Seattle area. And it was those guys. It was that next manufacturing run that was able to get us into Nordstrom. So that was just focusing on kids. So we did 10 kid styles. Those shoes were of the quality of the Nordstrom quality to be able to get on the shelves for back to school in 2017. And I assume a shoe dog is a expert shoe person. <laughs> yeah, shoe dog is kind of. An, I, I never really heard the term before being in this uh, being in this space. But yeah, it's a guy that uh, way back when, just a workhorse that was stocking shelves and you know being on the floor to do the sit and fit, and then also the guys that kind of move up the move up the ladder as a sales reps for many many brands. And then you can really just uh, speak the lingo and are in that network. So it all wraps up into what is a shoe dog. Do you think that Nordstrom, you were able, I mean, I'm sure Nordstrom gets pitched shoes all the time. Was it the unique zipper style, easy on off that you think caught them? Or were you in that sales meeting? What was it? Yeah, we were. I was definitely in the sales meeting. But the gentleman that joined our team, his name is Patrick Foster. He He knew people. That because he, when he was working the sit and fit, it was in Nordstrom. So, I mean, he grew up in like those, in those spaces and knew the buyers of Nordstrom and knew the people that were actually running Nordstrom. But it wasn't Patrick that got us into Nordstrom. All that Patrick did was he was able to set up a meeting that we could go in and show them the shoes, talk about the story, like what brought it to, what brought it to be like manufactured in the first place what the vision was and what the potential was. And uh, the buyer saw it. The buyer saw that, you know, having a nice easy on, easy off shoe, yeah, the inspiration may have come from myself being, um, you know, being paralyzed from the chest down. But looking at this shoe, I mean, now being a parent of a three and a half year old, you know, anything we can do to get that kid out the door faster is a check in the wind column. So they saw that and uh, they knew it was going to be successful, as did we. And uh, they joined us in this journey. So you get into Nordstrom's and Zappos. I guess Zappos was separate from Amazon at the time. So Amazon, I don't. I can't. I can't remember, remember when, when they bought them. Yeah, I can't remember that. But they were always run separately. I know that. Correct. Correct. And and they still are. 
but Amazon had already purchased Zappos prior to us getting introduced to Zappos. We got connected with Zappos again through like kind of a mutual connection to Patrick and, uh, you know, had a great conversation with their team. And we were really using the exact same words. We wanted to be able to have an inclusive product that, um, just had the functional characteristics, but also the fashion element too. So we, they, they ordered a bunch of shoes for back to school 2017. That was a great success too. So we were having great success in both Nordstrom and Zappos. And that really set us up for the following year and then years after. Was that the, so you are not selling here on, um, well, for people who aren't looking, I'm looking at your website, billyfootwear.com. You had not stood that up yet. You were mainly doing wholesale to this point. So we were doing wholesale. We did have billyfootwear.com up. However, we were pointing all of the traffic back to Nordstrom and back to Zappos because we wanted to make sure that our retail partners were being successful because we realized that without their, without their success, we would not be successful. So early on, we pointed all traffic to our wholesale partners. And then once we were, you know, confident that that foundation was built, that's when we turned on our own e-commerce, which was actually over a year later that we turned on our own e-commerce in December of 2018. That's a very tricky balancing act, isn't it? Because in, it, you, you took a, that's what you, the track that you took is not necessarily the track that happens in many ways. It now happens that you have to prove you can get sales and then the stores will get you in, or you may never go because you'll go direct to the consumer and use that wholesale margin to acquire the customer. But was that a problem, a balancing act for you? Were they upset at all? Did they care? It was. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I've ever been asked that question, but I know that when we flipped the switch to turn on our own e-commerce, we certainly, as a team, got together going like, is this going to be a problem? And uh, we flipped the switch and just, it was one of those like, well, we'll see. And uh, we were ready to turn it off if, if it did become a problem. What we found was there was plenty, I mean, it, what it did was it just made the audience bigger. It wasn't like we were stealing sales from our retail, par- retail partners. We were finding new partners, new sales. It just grew the brand as a whole. And when the brand started growing, the demand started growing. One of the big things was both Zappos and Nordstrom, they weren't selling outside of the country. So us having our own e-commerce, it allowed us to be able to reach these customers that were finding out about us in Europe, in Canada, in South America, in Australia. And through our own e-commerce, we were able to facilitate that need. Okay, yeah, my, my, my background is... In the originally, my first company, other than a lemonade stand, was I built the largest social networking and e-commerce site for sport fishermen on the internet back in the early days and 90s. And having been in the fishing industry, one of the big things that happened in that was that the small retailers were really responsible for launching fishing brands, not just lures, but clothing and things like that. Even think Patagonia back in the day really used a retail network and then eventually came into a catalog and whatnot. But those companies, and then what happened when the internet came out was that many of them really felt like things were stolen. And then as I learned and got older, more experienced, I saw that in a lot of businesses, that was the challenge was, was that, of course, you want to go direct to the consumer. First of all, you're going to capture more margin. And second of all, 
you control your own destiny in many ways, but in many ways, you you also have to hold a lot of inventory. When they did those deals with you, Billy, did they have buyback terms and things like that? Did you and your partner even understand what that meant at the end of the season if they didn't sell it, that you had to buy things back? How did that sort of work? Yeah. So we learned what buybacks were in a hurry. We weren't familiar with that term. So I, so Darren and I were kind of learning as we went, but Patrick being in the business, he knew what that meant. And uh, the good thing about it was both Nordstrom and Zappos early on, they recognized that we were we were a small business and they saw the direction we were going. So they were, they were uh, flexible on those terms. So we didn't have buybacks. Oh. We were very forced in that regard. But at the same time, we did everything we could to make sure that stuff sold. So we would be doing events in store to make sure like customers would come and like this is at Nordstrom to make sure that, that people were finding out about the brand and really like making that connection with that customer. On your own tab, and then do, basically going in. Yeah, on our own tab. Exactly, exactly. And then just making sure to be very active on both social media to drive traffic to, to Zappos.com and Norson.com just to make sure to, you know, make sure those guys were successful. And they, and they saw that. It wasn't a necessary. They saw it both in sales and they saw it in term, in spirit and just like, the integrity that we really want to do this together. So, yeah. So that, 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 that was something we chose to do and it was, it, it, it was a good thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think it's a testament to the big brands. I think big brands or big companies get a bad rap sometimes legitimately, but this is a case where they understand because a buyback for a small business will absolutely crush you. I mean, it, it, it's over. It can shut you down because you, you don't have an outlet to get that and you got to come up with cash flow. Now you're out, you're just out cash all around from when you bought it, everything. Yeah. Well, the thing was, we're as I was saying, like earlier on, we came off that massive failure where the manufacturing disaster. So here we are, our next manufacturing run. It's like, this has to work. We have to do everything we can to make this work because the, the, the shoes that both Nordstrom and Zappos were buying, they weren't buying initially enough shoes. They, they weren't buying the whole lot. So they would buy a little bit and you had to make sure to sell that to be able to have a replenishment like time and time again. And then to be able to have the cash flow to be able to make more shoes for the next go to keep things fresh. So it was, yeah, I mean, we did, we did everything we could to make sure that stuff sold. How do you manage the cash flow? Were you factoring? Were you just using your own money to float all this and you weren't taking a salary at the time? You were still doing day job. That's exactly right. Yeah. So we being a side hustle. We were working our day jobs to pay the bills of life, but also pay the bills of the business. And uh, just doing everything we can to not take any money whatsoever from the business until, you know, we responsibly could do so. So it was straight up bootstrap. We couldn't go to banks because banks are looking at a business like ours being small, definitely going into shoes, which is a very risky business because there's some big, big dogs out there. And, uh, us being a very, very small company, you know, trying to be like disruptive in the market to do something different, it, it was high risk. But at the same time, we believed and uh, we were, we were to put our own money into that belief until we finally got a bit of a financial foundation that we could start doing bigger stuff. Did you patent that? We are patent pending. Yeah, for sure. Because that's a big thing. Because if someone knocks that off, it just becomes a major problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
did you how did you even approach that? Did you have someone write that patent? Did you write it? Did you think about that from the beginning? Because we haven't talked about that. Right. Yeah. So we we did think about that from the beginning, and you put together the rendering drawings, and uh, you, you look at prior artwork that's out there. You know, out there that's that's been filed in the past, both internationally and domestic. And uh, it's really incredible the amount of stuff that the amount of ideas that are out there that just don't really they don't really see the light of day. So th- there was there was a lot of previous artwork that's out there, but we definitely made sure to pursue protection for uh, for design just to be able to give ourselves the most protection as possible to be able to get out there and to be able to make a name for ourselves. So that when people see like a wraparound zipper or even a zipper in general. They start thinking of the Billy brand. Did you patent it in, I mean, the patent strategy is not easy. You can patent the United States and then you're not covered internationally. If you do it internationally, it becomes very, very expensive. So then you have to pick your markets and things like that. How did you guys approach that? You're right. I mean, so the EU, you can't just do, well, so again, we're still like patent pending in a lot of these areas. So yeah. You have to kind of look at the cash flow for sure. You need to look at like your own, what markets you want to pursue. And uh, you have to choose the country. I mean, the big thing too is the United States is is by far the biggest market. So a, a lot of the focus is, you know, still very much so on the United States for more of like the patent protection. Trademarking is also really important. And uh, we, we found that trademarking is a little bit more powerful when it comes to international because that's more like the name of the brand. Because when it comes to patents, it's like, okay, like if there's another country out there that's um, going to do something similar, you know, you got to, you have to evaluate if we're really going to throw down and go after some knockoff out of like Mexico or something like that. It's just like, well, we, let's focus more on the United States for this. I mean, you have to, you can't just turn your back to it, but at the same time, you have to kind of evaluate where the highest priorities are and uh, where you can throw the most, the most funds. Because really, like all of our money that we're still generating right now, it's still going right back into product because the demand is so high for these shoes. We need to do everything we can to make more shoes to meet the market demand. So that's always at the front of the mind. What do you think made the demand? as high as it is right now like is it is it your advertising is it the nordstrom in the united states launched it like what created the flywheel that got it out there well there were definitely some some pivotal moments that uh, like viral viral post type moments inclusion is a word that's spoken tremendously these days and it's a word that's been around a long long time but it just seems to be getting a lot of attention right now. One of the words we use quite a bit is universal design, meaning that you can create something that really like trans, it doesn't matter who you are, you'd be successful with this particular widget. It was a term that I knew from mechanical engineering and in both college and uh, working for the FAA for many years in architecture. And then we just kind of carried it over into, into design. And uh, I think that that type, being able to create something that levels the playing field, it really caught a lot of people's attention. And then when you start having like successful moments with the customer, and then that customer tells two of their friends, and then those two people 
have successful moments. And that goes over and over and over. That word of mouth, although grassroots and can take a little while to process, it's really powerful and it really creates a strong foundation. We did have, I was mentioning like viral moments. We did have a Facebook post where there was a mom who had a very successful transaction at a, uh, at a Nordstrom in Minneapolis at the Mall of America. And she went home and made a post about it. She's like, my daughter is using these shoes. They're so easy for her to get on. And uh, it was a type of post that I'd seen many, many times before. But for whatever reason, this one really got legs and it hit. And in three days time, it was shared 280,000 times. And then now lifetime, it's like upward of 600,000 times. So that authentic story to be able to go around the globe as many times as it did, it really generates a tremendous amount of momentum. And that type of stuff is really that flywheel that really kickstarted our business. And you really just have to stay in the game for that because it's very hard to manufacture that. It is, yeah, because the post that she made, it was the type of post I had seen many, many times. There was nothing sexy about it. There wasn't anything outrageous about it. It was just a matter of like trying and trying and trying, keeping that lure in the pond, in the river, and then all of a sudden you're able to hook up the big lunker. So when did you decide to do to quit your day jobs? Did you hire someone else before you hired yourselves? When do you when do you decide to do that? So Darren, yeah, so Darren and I we we both stepped away from our day jobs in uh, the start of in December of 2018, and at that time there were four people on the team, and we had a couple of other not there. Well, let me rephrase that: there were more like six people on the team, just been depending on their ownership of the business and their involvement. And as a team, they said, "Billy, Darren, you need to step away from your day jobs. Like now is the time." The demand is too high. You need to focus all your attention like on the shoes because we were, I mean, day job, we were working like nine to five and then shoes from like five till midnight and on the weekends. So when stepping away from our day job, it wasn't just all of a sudden just doing shoes for eight hours. It was a matter like you wake in the morning and you still go to midnight working on shoes. So it was just a long, long day, but the business required that. And um, it's just a lot of sweat and hard work. But it was pretty surreal for the team to just say, like, look, the business is to a point where it's like, you guys have to focus on this full time. So it was, a, it was a collective decision. Did you decide to, I don't know if it's obvious or not, did you pay yourselves equivalent salaries? Or how did you think about that? We looked at our expenses, our personal expenses, and figured out what it would take for us to be able to pay our own bills. And that's what we paid ourselves. And then we just kind of grew from there as the business grew. So how are you, and then how are you managing cash flow? How are you, have you raised money or is a bank loan you money now? Did you take credit card debt? How have you managed it? Because it, the math in, in clothing and shoes, just from factory order to shipping, I mean, there's a lot of, on a P&L basis, you're probably making a lot of money. On a cash flow basis, it's strung out pretty far. Yeah, cash flow is an interesting beast, <laughs> especially in shoes because oftentimes, uh, you know, there's this significant buy. So we have a huge buy in the spring and a huge buy for fall. So it takes a huge amount of capital going out. And then like you kind of, you, uh, you get that back as, uh, as you sell the shoes. So how do we manage that? So it was really a, a lot of our personal finances early on because the bank wouldn't give us lending. But as we started to make sales and, um, show profitability, then the, the bank gets a little bit more open to talk to you. 
Um, just recently, we secured a small business loan. So that was tremendously helpful. To get to that point, there was a lot of private lending. So we would have friends that would be willing to, you know, take the risk and then we would just pay them, you know, an interest rate. And depending on what the deal was, it might have been a short term, like purchase order type loan. It's like, hey, we need this money right now. And then as soon as we can sell it to whoever the retail partner is, we can pay you back and it'll come with some sort of, which is kind of like a personal factoring, I guess. Yeah, it's true bootstrapping. Uh, It's bootstrap factoring is basically what it is. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, but it, there were friends that just kind of believed in the project and uh, were willing to take the risk. So they were the ones that were really able to help us secure the position that we're at right now to be able to go to these more traditional institutions to be able to get the more conventional type lending. So where are you now? Like how many SKUs? How big's your company? How many people work for you? How How's that? So right now we have a staff of 22. I'm sure we'll grow another four or five before the the year's out. We just moved into a 25,000 square foot warehouse. And uh, this warehouse is big enough that we can actually can accept our own containers. So there's containers that can back up to two roll-up doors. We have, boy, SKUs, I can't even tell you. I mean, it's for silhouettes. I mean, it's in the hundreds at this point with all the different sizing variants. It puts us in the thousands. And uh, we've definitely retired some. And then just uh, stuff that's very much evergreen with new styles coming in. We started, we really hit, hit mainstream. It was just kids' shoes. And then we've expanded to toddler, women's, men's, wider shoes. There's a lot of folks that come and have had a lot of success with the brand because of some sort of medical condition. So we're starting looking at like shoes that are way more functional focused instead of more like universal design focused. In terms of retail partners, we have, we have retail partners throughout the United States, Canada, Europe, Australia, South America. Some of the big retail partners would be Nordstrom and Zappos, which we talked about quite a bit. But in in the Midwest, we have Shields, Von Mar. We're in Target now. And wow. this year we'll be in both Kohl's and DSW. That's huge. Yeah, I was looking at your website. I was like, I can't. There's just so many. There's so many shoes on here, man. It's just crazy. How, who comes up with these designs? So we have a design team at this point. So early on, you know, Darren, I kind of brought the story to the table and the original idea, but Darren's really the one that spearheads the product development. He's the one that um, can really execute on both those designs and, and then bring it into production. But it's not just us. I mean, it's a, it's a whole team network. So it's working with the factories directly and uh, doing the sample process back and forth, making comments and then just executing it. There's a second designer that helps Darren with some of the silhouettes. It's pretty wild because the original sourcing part that we went to, not the original, original with the disaster, but the second one that really helped us out. A lot of the, there's four team members that now work for Billy Footwear that came from that company. So when COVID hit, they had to downsize and it was awesome because we were in the position to be able to pick them up and their skill set is just, oh my gosh, you just, it, it, it's so valuable to, to our business. You know, I'm looking here, Billy. Your shoes are very reasonably priced. Is that on purpose? Most definitely. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, you gotta be competitive in the market. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's tough out there. So we wanted to, we looked at other shoes out there like Vans, Converse. I mean, those are just two that just are, are, are right. very well known brands. 
And for us to be competitive in the market, we needed to be able to not only meet their price point, but have a quality that was comparable. Because if you don't have the quality and you don't have the fashion, you don't have the price point, it's going to be really hard to make it as a business, especially as a startup. Goodness. Yeah. So you're now, you officially started in 2015. So in seven years, less than seven years, effectively from, not from idea to here, but from sort of true company first product. And maybe that's not fair to say, maybe you got to do 2012. So you're like 10 years in, you basically have a full blown company. You're in all the major retailers and you're doing it with less than 22 people. It's actually pretty impressive because there's a lot of, you almost would have to have an account manager for every one of those major places effectively just managing inventory orders for the upcoming season and everything like that. So are you stretched then? A little bit. <laughs> A little bit. Yeah, the team works hard. The team works incredibly hard. And uh, they just believe. I mean, our, our, our business is rooted in trying to add value. And our mission statement is like, we want to make a measurable difference in the world one foot at a time. And uh, there's so many, so often we get customer feedback where they're just, they're really long reviews that uh, they're just telling their story. And oftentimes you can feel the tears between the lines on, on some of these, on some of these reviews because they're able to have an experience of which they've never been able to have before. Like all of a sudden the, the shoe is unlocking this challenge. They're overcoming this challenge. And I can definitely relate to it. I mean, when, when, when Darren gifted that prototype with me, I put it on and I was 36 at that time. I broke my neck at 18. So in half, like half a lifetime later, literally half a lifetime later, I was taken back that independence. And it was just so special that we knew we had to share it. And these customers, some of these customers are having the same experience. And when they, and when they communicate that to that to us, Oftentimes they use the words, it's more than a shoe. It just warms our hearts tremendously. And um, yes, we're stretched thin. We're doing our best to bring more people on to meet the demand. But uh, but we believe, you know, yeah, and we a, believe in our customers. It's a, cool, it's a cool story. I'm grateful for you coming on and congratulations in your success. It's 10 years sounds like a long time, but there's no overnight successes. But when it does start to happen it really starts to happen and and you grab hold. But for that first half or first three quarters, and I've been there, you just don't know. <laughs> You're just praying every morning or every Friday or every payroll that you can basically, you can make it. And I think people miss that in the, in the back end that it's just, there's a lot of risk. But you guys seem to be over the hump and it's a cool, it's a cool brand. So thanks for sharing your story. I do have a question now as, I don't know, it seems like you're chief everything along with everybody else there, but what does your day look like? Yeah, so great question. So I, so Darren and I used to wear all the hats. <laughs> and as each person, as we get a new person to the team, one of those hats comes off, which is great. So my day right now is really now focused on more of communicating with the customer, like reaching out and doing things like this, talking about the brand awareness like doing the fulfillment, doing the the technical behind the scenes, all those those different communications with factories, a product development, all that stuff is now picked up by people on our team right now that can do it way better than I ever could. So that's that's what's 
that's what's so exciting for me that we now have like this tremendous team that with players in the right position, not only for those players to own it, but to, to really like set this thing on fire and grow this thing better than Darren and I and really Patrick could have ever done on our own. So my day, my daily basis, my day now is uh, waking up, looking at my wife and my two kids and going like, wow, this is incredible. What a great, great morning to start off with just that. And then uh, roll into the office and uh, meet with the team and um, just uh, check in on customer service because that was something that at one point I was doing all on my own. And uh, now we have a, a full team doing customer service, which is just brilliant. And um, just checking the stats. I mean, there's a lot going on right now, moving into a new space, like dealing with these containers and getting prepared for back to school. So it's a little bonkers at the moment, and we're a little bit behind on getting our orders out to customers. So customers that are listening right now, we do apologize, but uh, we're, we're going to get over this hump and then it'll be like smooth sailing. But that's really it and kind of look towards the future and plan for it. Do you get up at six and eat breakfast with your family? Like you get in the office now at eight and work a normal, not normal. I don't know what normal is <laughs> an early stage company, but like do you get out by seven so that you can get home with your family and then you try to, how many hours of sleep do you aim to try to get to, to basically withstand this sort of right. game? I'm, I'm not good at getting a lot of sleep. <laughs> I, I definitely kind of burn the midnight oil to try to clear out the inbox by the end of the night. It would make more sense to be able to go to bed a little bit earlier and get up earlier, but uh, definitely spend some time with the family in the morning and then I make it home time for dinner and then uh, hang out with the family for uh, the kids are so young. So it's bath time and then uh, do the bed night, bedtime stories and then uh, just kind of wrap the day up, uh, finish up some emails and then just start it over the next day. So does that mean you're getting five hours of sleep a night? <laughs> <laughs> it ranges from five to eight. It yeah. Does. Well, you'll figure that out as time yeah. goes on. <laughs> if you offer listeners three HPT's high-performance tips based on this whole experience, what are they? So the big one I would start with would be failure. When it comes to failure, I wouldn't say... I wouldn't look at failure as necessarily a bad thing. Because, I mean, our business... There's no way our business would be where it is today if it weren't for failure. And uh, what we found is failure isn't the opposite of success. Like really the opposite of success is quitting. So it's a matter of like when we fail, it's a matter of like trying to learn the lessons of that failure, what went wrong, and then just kind of figure out a strategy to pay that forward the next go and do better. So we just found that finding success has just been a stepping stone to failure after failure after failure. And it's a matter of like failure, like knocks you back a little, but not all the way back. It just like helps you for the next go. So that's one big one. The second one I would say is the power of networking and the power of like communicating, just like doing right to the customer. You know, we would not be where we are today if it weren't for the relationships that we've built with manufacturing partners, with retail partners, as well as the direct consumer. And then the last thing I would say is, just do what you can to add value. I mean, put the need of someone else ahead of your own. I mean, you got to be able to pay the bills and keep the lights on and stuff, but really focusing in on the customer, it'll reciprocate back to you more than, I don't know. I mean, there's no mathematical equation for it, but it'll come back to you full fold. Those are great. Where can listeners find your shoes? So the mothership is billyfootwear.com. On that website, there is a tab that says store locations. 
that'll have all of our retail partners around the world. It'll have a, a list of where they're at. But you can certainly buy from BillyFootwear.com. On social, everything is at Billy Footwear. So that goes for Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter. I'm probably missing a few, <laughs> but all that out there. So that's how you find us. Right on. We'll put that in the show notes. Billy, thanks a lot for joining us today and sharing your story. And congratulations on your success so far, man. Hey, thank you very, very much. Bye, everyone. Thanks for being generous with your time and joining us for this episode of The Edge. Before you go, a quick question. Are you the type of person who wants to get 100% out of your time, talent, and ideas? If so, you'll love our monthly Edge newsletter. It's a monthly playbook about the inner game of building a successful business. In each newsletter, we pull back the curtain on our business and show you exactly what's happening, the real numbers, real conversion rates, lessons learned from failed and successful strategies, and how we're investing the money we make from our business to outperform the general stock market. We lay out what we're doing to get 75% conversion rates on our product pages, how we're optimizing our Facebook, Instagram, and other paid ads to get our leads under $3.87, the results from our email A-B tests, results from strategies I test to get more done in less time that allows me to ride my bike 100 plus miles a week, work out, spend time with Yvette, and still successfully run our business. How I'm investing the money we make from our business that has led our retirement account to average 20% over the last 10 years. The exact stocks, ETFs, cryptocurrencies, and other investments we're buying each and every month, and tons of other actionable information. Imagine the time and money you'll save by having this holy grail of business intelligence. You can take all of it, apply it to your life as an entrepreneur to avoid costly mistakes and be happier, healthier, and richer. As a fellow entrepreneur who's aiming for nothing short of success, you owe it to yourself to subscribe. Check out the special offer with bonuses for you as a listener at edgenewsletter.com. Again, that's E-D-G-E newsletter.com.